You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Thursday, December 17, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Logica Capital's Mike Green. But first, with today's stories, Jack Farley. Thanks, Ash. Today was a day of dollar weakness, with the U.S. dollar index sinking below 90 for the first time since April 2018. The DXY was down three quarters of 1%, one of the worst days for the index all year. What were the effects? Well, a weak dollar generally supports hard assets, so copper and oil dutifully marched higher alongside gold. However, Bitcoin is on an absolute tear, up 8% today, and combined with yesterday, it's up 18%, marking the biggest two-day rally for all of 2020. In other news, U.S. initial jobless claims came in at 885,000, markedly higher than expectations. Coupled with yesterday's fall in retail sales numbers, this dismal jobless print is ominous for the American economy. Yet, despite this, U.S. equities obediently advanced today. Yields on U.S. Treasuries briefly plummeted on the job sprint, which was released at 8.30 a.m. Eastern today, but they had a head fake shortly thereafter, and by 11.30 a.m., the yield on the 10-year was actually up on the day. The explanation making the rounds is one that you may have heard before, that this cry of distress from the labor market will motivate lawmakers to pass a stimulus bill. Now, the core stimulus bill that's being considered right now it now weighs in at $748 billion, and it contains a $300 billion provision for small businesses. Now, this $748 billion may sound like a lot, but it's a far cry from the $2.4 trillion that Democrats were originally seeking. One thing I have my eye on is that the Republicans, led by Senator Pat Toomey, are angling to categorically extinguish the Federal Reserve's emergency lending programs, which, though the funds were barely used for 2020, arguably played a critical psychological role in helping the credit markets function because they comforted the marginal buyer. Looking forward, on next Monday, December 21st, Tesla will be officially included in the S&P 500. Tesla is the largest stock to ever enter the S&P 500, both in terms of rank within the index as well as just pure market cap. Tesla is also roughly four times as volatile as the S&P 500. What's the significance of this going forward? Well, Rob Arnott has an excellent piece on this. I'll include a link to it in the description below. Uh, for more on Tesla, you can check out my interview with uh, forensic accountant Steve Clapham. Uh, that aired today, and uh, check that out if you have a chance. Back to you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mike Green, Real Vision's closing ace. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Ash. I appreciate it. Mike, it's always a pleasure to have you. You know, you're here on a day where the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500, and the NASDAQ Composite Index have all hit all-time highs. Mike, what could possibly go wrong? 
What do you mean? What could possibly go wrong? Everything's gone wrong. We've had a global pandemic. We've had a massive recession. Fed has been forced to bail everything out. And yet we're sitting at all time highs. This, this is fairly markets are clearly projecting a better future ahead. So everything that can go wrong has gone wrong and nothing wrong can go. Nothing can go wrong in the future. So what's the disconnect here with this pricing mechanism? How is uh, this so badly out of whack with what we see every day? So look, at the core, I'm going to go back to what I said in our March piece, um, where on you know March 26, we put out a piece called Policy in a Time of Pandemics that highlighted what I would refer to as the inelasticity of markets, right? Their propensity to respond to flows in either direction. What happened in March was a crash caused by discretionary managers trying to exit markets, trying to make their way out in an environment in which passive players really don't transact. I mean, one of the most revealing statements that came out in the aftermath of that was Vanguard announcing with pride that less than 1% of their, uh, their accounts even transacted in March. Right Now, that's perceived as a huge positive, but when you have effectively hodlers, to use the Bitcoin term, Markets can crash down and markets can rebound with equal ferocity. And that's really what we've seen in in remarkably short period of time. We've gone from way below trend over the past 10 years in terms of global market caps to way above trend. And that can really only be explained by markets being extremely sensitive to flows because a giant chunk of the market doesn't interact. Let's bring that chart up, uh, Mike, because that's a really good point. Uh, walk us through this. So the, the first chart that I sent you is just literally looking at the trend in global market capitalizations um, for the U.S. and for the rest of the world. They're indexed to December of 2010 as, as uh, par. If you're thinking about what has occurred, the U.S. has significantly outpaced the rest of the world. And that has actually continued in the aftermath of COVID. And so, again, what we said in March was that the world was going to continue pretty much as it had. And ironically, that's exactly what's happened. You've now seen um, both U.S. market caps and global market caps move back above that kind of nine-year trend that it existed to near record levels in the shortest amount of time in history. They just yeah. immediately shot back. Yeah. And so, you know, as you point out, you can, I don't have the chart in front of me right now, but I can remember what it said earlier. So basically, you have this trend line that's showing an accelerating slope, and yet the current global market capitalization has actually outstripped or outpaced that rise uh, in the rate of the rate. Yeah, and, and, and we should expect to continue to see this, right? I mean, part of my core thesis in terms of the dynamics of passive penetration is that you will see an accelerating slope, effectively increased volatility or, again, to use the phrase, inelasticity that can push markets up to levels that we couldn't previously have imagined. Yeah. Right. And one of the great things ab about this is, of course, that that means that the volatility can occur in both directions. You're trading in a thin market with very little liquidity. One of the, the we also wrote about this, I believe, in July or August. We talked about the dynamics of markets having lost extraordinary amounts of depth. In other words, the order book depth has retreated. Just to put that in perspective, if I were to go back to 2010 and I were to evaluate what size order would have to hit the market to cause it to move, in other words, to exhaust the immediacy of the order book at spot, you literally would have to have an order in the neighborhood of a billion dollars. If I go back to the trough in March, you could have moved the S&P a point by trading a million dollars, one one thousandth the liquidity. 
Today, you're probably about 10 times that. You've recovered significantly off of the March lows, but you're still talking about a $10 million order can move the markets. That's yeah. an extraordinarily fragile condition. Yeah, a $10 million trade for an institutional, uh, an institutional player is incredibly small. It's incredibly small. And yeah. people do not understand that that illiquidity, you tend to think about that sort of thinness as driving markets down. But as people try to come back into the markets, as they did in the aftermath of coronavirus, it has the effect of pushing them back up with an equal speed or an equally fragile type dynamic. And yeah. I would argue that's what we've seen. Yeah. And you've been way ahead of the curve on this. You've been talking about passive indexation now on Real Vision for years, I believe. Uh, and it's a difficult thing, I think, for people to grasp because there is this uh, almost frog in the pot of boiling water effect. As uh, a lot of the uh, as a lot of the liquidity moves into passive products, progressively smaller amounts, as you detailed, uh, of market action can move price in either direction. But it's hard for people to feel on a daily basis, especially if they are focused on watching this ever higher march on prices. Well, I, I think I've used the analogy. I'm trying to explain to people that the car has no brakes as we're driving uphill. Right, which if you stop and think about it, that's exactly when you want to know. You don't want to find out the car has no brakes as you're heading downhill. But it's also the point at which you can most easily dispute the statement, right? Well, what you know, what's your evidence that the car has no brakes? I can slow down. Look, I can slow down just by lifting my foot off the accelerator, right? That unfortunately is kind of where we are right now. It feels like everything's fine. It feels better than ever. Trump will point to the stock market and say, look, it's at the all-time record. This is validation of everything that I've done in my administration. Forget your views on Trump, whether you love him or hate him. That broad view of financial markets being reflective of the experience that the rest of us are supposed to be having has permeated the world. Right? And we see it in our policymakers. We saw the immediacy of policy that was reached when the S&P was down 30%. We've seen the never-ending delay that has occurred since September when we started trying to get a second deal in place, a second stimulus package in place. There's no incentive to do so if markets are at all-time highs. Right. You know, to extend uh, your metaphor in the most literal sense, we are now at the top of the hill on the chart on all three of the major U.S. equity indexes that people follow regularly. There's nothing above us. Well, when you say the top of the hill, you're presuming knowledge of what happens next, right? And so I do think that that is, that, that is difficult because we do not know if the road continues to extend higher ahead of us. Yeah. Um, we don't have an altimeter. If we did, it would be easier. Um, but at this point, I would say it's fairly safe to say that we're beginning to ascend, you know, uh, past base camp in Mount Everest and moving into pretty rarefied air. Yeah. Well, we're at the top of the hill for today, at least. When we yes, look up, we, are the, we, we are the top of the heap. That's exactly right. You know, and to bring us back to the news flow, uh, you know, talk right now of this stimulus deal about $900 billion on the table, uh, Democrats and Republicans trying to reach an agreement. Uh, presumably, that's a bit of a tailwind for this market. Uh, unknown whether or not it will get done, but that perception uh, appears to be playing a role in sentiment today. I think that's true. And I think, um, you know, we are seeing repeatedly this pattern of money being allocated and then reallocated across different sectors of the economy. Today's winner was the Russell. It's broadly been the winner since vaccine announcement on November 9th. But we're seeing this really interesting phenomenon of if the Russell is roaring ahead, then the NASDAQ is lagging behind. If the NASDAQ yeah. is roaring ahead, the Russell is roaring, but is, is lagging behind. We're seeing this serial uh, negative autocorrelation that is kicking in 
that to me at least is indicative of portfolios being um, stressed in the in the simplest phrase, right? People are trying to construct a consistent narrative. They're trying to build a broader trend. And that's proven difficult to do in this market. It's very yeah. hard to run long short in this type of framework. Yeah, I'm always struck when I hear people on other financial networks uh, come on and talk about their absolute conviction uh, in uh, growth to value, or is it value to growth? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I so I, I, um, I don't actually believe in either growth or value per se. I've, you know, we wrote an extensive piece, uh, I believe it was in May or June, on the value factor and broadly characterized it as effectively short volatility versus long volatility. This has been an extraordinary period for short volatility investing. If you were capable or smart enough to sell puts on the S&P with the VIX at 86 in March, you've done phenomenally well. Likewise, if you had bought calls and held those calls on a directional basis, you've done extraordinarily well. And many have done exactly that. And you've seen this in the Robin Hood narratives, et cetera, of the world where people are aggressively buying calls to speculate on future price appreciation and in turn influencing these very thin markets to move in the direction that, that they would like to, right? That, that's played out all over the place. And it's been an extraordinary environment for people to make very speculative profits. Yeah, and obviously, you know, selling vol at 21 on the VIX, that's a trade that uh, takes uh, some, um, well, I'll leave it to you to supply the adjective. Well, I, the irony, of course, is that we now view 21 as low, but 21 would have been an extraordinary level of volatility if we go back to most of 2017 or 2018. And I think that's one of the most interesting dynamics is that we have normalized a much higher level of volatility. Right. The only precedent for that type of normalized level of higher volatility is actually the 1990s. Um, and it had a very different characteristic in that time period. You had a number of small, thinly traded securities that had extraordinarily high single stock volatility. This time around, the, the single stock volatility was very high during the summers, but it's retreated much more um, than, you, than, than we had in the 1990s. This is a much broader perspective that kind of fits with my broader argument around the idea that we're looking at significant risks of much higher correlation. Actually, I'm going to share this screen here and just show this to the viewers. But this is looking at the dynamics of correlation, and many viewers have seen a chart that looks like this. This is actually taking uh, a, a measure of correlation back into the 1920s. This is a, a chart that was distributed with some of our writings over the summer. And one of the things that was fascinating to us is that if you look at the kind of 2018-2019 dynamics, we saw this return of higher correlation that um, has now completely morphed. And if I add 2020 into this picture, that's what 2020 looks like. Mm. Like we're literally sitting in an area of correlation that we've just never seen before. And um, it, it, it is frustrating because it really is one of these things where if you look at how 2020 has played out, even though it has turned into an extraordinarily bullish market, I think people have to be very cautious and very cognizant of the risks that have been embedded in this market. Yeah, historically, the average level of the VIX uh, around 11 or 12. So we're sitting uh, nearly 100% higher now. Yeah, and, and I think that's right. And I think it's important to understand that volatility tends to be bimodal in its distribution. In other words, it tends to have two distinct distributions. 
during periods of expansion, which supposedly is what we're in now, you tend to see volatility in the, as you point out, kind of 12 range. Today, we're seeing in normalized levels that are consistent with recessionary activity in the 20 plus range. And again, the only precedent that we really have for that sort of behavior with markets hitting all time highs would be in the late 1990s. And the dynamics were different in, in terms of the character of that market, but the same phenomenon is manifesting itself. And I think people should be aware that that higher volatility represents a cost that should be embedded in lower valuations, yeah. which we're obviously not seeing. And again, yeah. it speaks to me to the dynamics of the influence of passive on markets. Yeah. And the other component, we, we've we covered passive indexation uh, and the fiscal component. Also curious to get your take uh, on the Fed yesterday. Fed dovish looking like to 2023, 30-year break-evens on treasuries at about 2%. Well, that 30-year break-even with the treasuries at you know sitting around 2%, that's actually almost exactly its normal level, right? So I know people are very excited to point to the inflationary dynamics. We just had a power surge here in California, so I'm not sure if I'm going to lose power in a second here. But um, when you when you think about um, the inflation break even sitting there, that is not indicating that there's any particular concern about inflation. I think that's part of what you actually heard from Powell yesterday, which is, hey, we're we're actually serious. We really want to get inflation, um, and the markets just aren't buying it yet. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Jack in the uh, intro also mentioned that the dollar index sinking below 90 uh, today for the first time since April 2018. What are your thoughts there? Well, look, I think that's actually one of the most important uh, metrics to keep track of. And again, I've talked about this elsewhere, but I think you know we need to be cognizant that we saw similar behavior coming off of the 2016 events. So February 2016, you know, the dollar hit a relatively local peak associated with financial distress around the globe. You saw a spike similar to what we saw in March of 2020, and it retreated effectively for the next 18 months with lots of excitement around, well, the dollar is done, it's finished, et cetera. The, the U.S., as evidenced by our trade deficit, continues to be the repository and, and uh, the uh, market that absorbs the world's excess supply. And as the dollar weakens, that becomes increasingly difficult, right? The pricing of products from China or the pricing of products from Europe becomes increasingly uncompetitive relative to domestically produced product. It can create inflation, but remember that the tradable goods and tradable services segment of the U.S. economy is very small. We're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% in aggregate. It just is really not a big driver of inflation, which is, you know, people are pointing to and highlighting those dynamics. If anything, I would be cautious about the implications for Asia and Europe should the U.S. economy begin to deteriorate and that source of aggregate demand begin to diminish. Yeah. So what's your take on some of the rising commodity prices? Is this just a sort of a frictional effect caused uh, by disruptions to supply chains? So most of the evidence that we're seeing uh, is that there are two potential sources of it. One is, is that there is absolutely an element of supply disruptions, particularly true for things like 
copper. It's also been true for things like lumber, which faced production shortages early in this process. And the mills uh, improperly expected the housing market to slow down dramatically, not anticipating that you would see an extraordinary growth of demand for new homes and right. uh, home uh, uh, do-it-yourself projects outside of the urban environments, right? So you don't use a lot of wood if you have a condo in San Francisco or in New York, but you use an awful lot of wood if you move out to Westchester or to Marin County, uh, assuming you can get a permit to build anything in Marin County. The, um, you know, those disruptions, and we've seen them in toilet paper and everywhere else, is you're effectively seeing multiple supply channels that tend to be separated, right? The commercial uh, lumber yard versus the Home Depot where the do-it-yourself goes. Those become challenging and create stresses in the system, lead to supply disruption, and can create these higher prices that ultimately create the incentive for those supply chains to fix themselves, restructure themselves, et cetera. And we've seen this, you know, on, on occasion, you're going to walk into a store and find endless supplies of toilet paper. And on other days, you're going to walk in and find them basically empty. I've encouraged people to look up something called the beer game, which is an MIT simulation on systems dynamics that talks through these, that, that allows people to play through these dynamics of, of inventory and logistics systems. Um, if we think about the underlying demand dynamic, you know, which is really kind of necessary to create a sustained front on this, that's a lot harder to justify, right? We're just not seeing that evidence. And in fact, if you talk to mills, uh, lumber mills, or if you talk to many of the producers, um, they will highlight that the demand for oil or the demand for copper or the demand for paper or the demand for lumber really haven't fully returned to their historical levels. It's just these disruptions that are causing these price increases. Yeah. I think it's very dangerous for people to get too excited about the inflation genie getting out of the uh, out of the bottle, right? There's clearly other metrics that are supportive of this, things like the performance of Bitcoin or the performance of gold up until relatively recently. But again, I think you just have to be very careful in, in understanding what you're looking at. I struggle to see the inflationary outcomes. Yeah. You know, talking of supply chain disruptions here in New York, we have tons of toilet paper, no paper towels. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's actually a great illustration. While they are both made of paper, the type of fabric or the type of fiber that is used in toilet paper is radically different than the type of fiber that's used in a paper towel. The type of fiber used in a toilet paper is designed to instantly decompose in, in the presence of wetness so that it can go down your toilet quite easily. Obviously, Paper towels are designed to do the exact opposite, right? They're supposed to be brawny and maintain their strength in the presence of wetness, which is, as an aside, why you should never flush a, a paper towel down your toilet. But with all that said, that's a perfect illustration of two products that are potentially substitutes in a pinch, right, that actually don't really function. And you've seen those supply chain disruptions lead to this sort of crazy outcome. Yeah, I'm buying individually packaged rolls of uh, paper towels and wrapped in a different language every week. I think it's uh, Spanish this week, French last week. Well, that's uh, just as uh, as you think about those underlying dynamics, make sure that you you remain focused on economies where they they want to keep themselves as clean as possible. So, indeed, you know, you tweeted earlier this morning to this point, this parabolic chart uh, of LB one uh, lumber. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that plays into the thesis. 
So lumber is so LB1 is the generic for lumber, right? And um, an individual had actually tweeted a 20-year history on lumber and showed the fact that lumber prices had risen above their kind of um, mean range over the past 20 years and that this was somewhat unique. Simply by extending that an additional four years, you see that you encountered exactly this type of behavior in the transition from the 1980s into the 1990s. And it goes exactly to a phenomenon that tends to emerge in commodities, which is you encounter supply shortages. Those supply shortages lead to new production being brought on in higher cost areas. That expansion of supply allows prices to stabilize, and they tend not to recover to those peaks for another 20 plus years. And I broadly think that's what's happening. I think we will likely see higher lumber prices going forward. But it is unlikely to me that they are going to continue to sustain this path. Yeah. You know, talking of all-time highs, you mentioned Bitcoin earlier. Uh, I think we're off the day's highs uh, in the, in the 22,000 ranges we have in this conversation. Uh, but we've been up past 23,600 on Bitcoin uh, earlier in the day to a new all-time high. And, of course, the big news uh, in the Valley is uh, Coinbase filing an S1 to go public. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is very exciting for Raul, among others, right? But, um, you know, Bitcoin has taken on, obviously, a life of its own. Um, it is perceived as a perfectly scarce asset that allows people to accumulate it as a store of wealth. Um, it is a magical store of wealth because it seems to multiply your wealth as it continues to go up. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how... Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how it is integrated into the financial asset market, right? It currently is, um, I, I would argue it's more of an off-ramp, effectively people deciding that they are going to take their money that is currently productively deployed in the system and check out. And ultimately that proves deflationary is, is um, you know, you are taking away people's ability to actually buy stuff or to participate we may see the financial environment emerge around it that allows people to borrow against it. And that then creates its own interesting challenges of how does a vehicle like Bitcoin handle the issue of defaults, right? If I borrow Bitcoin and I can't return it to you, how do you have recourse against me? These are all unknowns. Uh, you know, to me, as, as I've indicated elsewhere, I am skeptical of Bitcoin, not as an object that can appreciate in price, Certainly anything can do that if there's an excess of demand versus supply. But whether it is ultimately going to be a vehicle that proves to, be, to have utility in the financial system is going to be a different question. Yeah. The folks in the DeFi space will say programmatic lending, decentralized lending, the ability to collateralize against a loan and then to automatically be able to take repossession uh, in the instance of a term of default. Um, that's their belief. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about uh, about the DeFi space when we're talking about lending. Well, I think that's a, an obvious and very interesting extension of what's going on. And I would, would um, draw an analogy to the build out that existed around the Internet in 1999. And I think a number of other people have done that as well. Right. It's incredibly important to understand that innovation in the financial system, things like the DeFi lending capabilities, you're effectively talking about disintermediating banks. And, and that, I think, actually plays a very important role. But understand you are talking about regulated entities, right? So banks are regulated entities. 
And governments tend not to look that favorably upon the breaking of regulated entities, particularly as it, as it ties to the creation of things that are used for paying taxes or driving economic activity. Yeah. Uh, it is different than internet or television, right? And we are beginning to see in communications, I would argue, starting to aggressively see a re-regulation of that space. Um, you know, the the acceptance of the idea that Twitter or Real Vision or other networks are going to completely replace the official channels or whether they are going to be subsumed within the official channels as the powers that be increasingly recognize their importance, I think carries important messages for Bitcoin and other alternative platforms. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me talking about the all-time high on Bitcoin today. I spent some time this morning uh, doing some research and analysis. And it's incredible to see how much of the on-chain data, this is the data that actually is the the, the rich data that yep. actually flows off uh, from analytics. Fascinating to see how much analysis is being done. That The two big points that uh, stuck with me this morning was that on-chain data has shown increases into flows in stable coins, meaning that people are purchasing stable coins, presumably to buy Bitcoin and other uh, risk assets in the crypto space, uh, and that which would suggest an increase in short-term buying power uh, in those spaces. And second, uh, how uh, an increasingly lower proportion of coins of the bitcoins themselves are being stored on exchange uh, which would suggest that the uh, that the sentiment skews toward holding rather than selling those assets yeah no it, what you're describing is ultimately that it is turned into a financial asset right where it is falling into institutional portfolios or the portfolios of those who ultimately are treating it as a semi-permanent or a an insurance policy against a world in which maybe the dollar doesn't work, right? Maybe we do have a dollar collapse. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the stablecoin type dynamics. I mean, I would encourage people, for example, to look at something like the maker um, uh, dynamics around stablecoin. One of the most interesting things you can draw away from those is that they themselves have actually embedded the features of a Fed bailout. Right. So, you know, the entire point of Maker, and I guess it's called the, the Dia coin or whatever, um, is to facilitate lending in the crypto space. And they have an algorithm, a component of the algorithm is actually built around causing an automatic bailout of the system through the issue of additional coin in the event that the collateral in the system falls. I mean, the irony is, is that's exactly what the Fed does. Right. I mean, that is exactly what the Fed is doing. So why would I use a private system as compared to the, the public system that I can use for paying taxes? Again, it's an interesting experiment, and I think ultimately it'll be subsumed by the regulated channels. But it's fascinating to see that type of dynamic embedded in the actual algorithm itself. Yeah, it reminds me of the old 90s anti-drug ad. I learned it from you, Dad. Yeah, exactly. That's very good. <laughs> I like it. Um, you know, interestingly, today, uh, Paxos just uh, closed $142 million funding round, another uh, one of the large stable coins. Uh, it also has a product that's a proxy uh, for gold. So this idea of a store of value function of a stable coin function, something that's obviously catching on. To shift gears here just a little bit, uh, our own Weston Nakamura, to your point uh, earlier uh, about the about the institutional flows coming into the crypto space, uh, Weston Nakamura, who's here at Real Vision, did some analysis uh, a few weeks ago uh, that showed a chart that showed very clear 
uh, monthly cyclicality uh, on uh, cryptocurrency, suggesting uh, something that looks like a monthly rebalancing, which is something isn't you generally associate with uh, retail investors. Uh, so there's an interesting sort of metaphor for this capital coming into the space. I'm curious, what are the regulatory issues that potentially might uh, be faced by banks and other, uh, as you talk about this merger of the two systems, it's really an interesting time to think through these issues. Yeah, no, I, I think um, this is, first of all, very classic Silicon Valley sort of stuff, right? You know, if you build it large enough, then they have to adopt it, you know, uh, go, uh, what is it, go fast and, and grow fast and break things, right? Um, so, engage in lending activity without becoming a regulated bank. And if you become large enough, then it's a variant of the, you know, if you owe the bank $100,000, that's your problem. If you owe the bank $100 billion, that's their problem. Um, that is effectively what they think they're trying to do. I was unaware, by the way, that Weston had joined Real Vision. That's a phenomenal ad. I've enjoyed interacting with him over Twitter for the past couple of years. Um, you know, when you think about this sort of regulatory framework, um, I think one of the challenges, of course, and one of the opportunity sets for the crypto space is that the largest players, the JP Morgans and the Wells Fargo's and you know even the Berkshire Hathaways to get into to, to the more broad uh, financial universe, they don't see this as a legitimate threat yet, right? And so that is kind of the opportunity set. Um, there's just not a lot of pressure yet on regulators to respond to it. And I don't think there's going to be until you actually have the equivalent of a credit type event where people have borrowed and can't return, right? Where they have taken margin out and people will point to the over collateralization of the crypto lending space, you know, where typically you can only borrow about two thirds of what you've posted as collateral, i.e. 150% collateralization. Like that leads to a, a relatively low risk credit environment, but it also facilitates fairly aggressive consolidation, right? Because there just is not the mechanism for debt forgiveness that exists in the broader societal framework. I think this is one of the key risks that people tend to underappreciate is if you don't have that societal uh, risk mitigation function, that ability to forgive a claim or forgive debt without the extreme loss of assets, that that creates an incredibly caustic environment from a societal standpoint and leads to even greater consolidation of wealth than what we've seen. And so I, I just think people have to be very thoughtful about the system that they are promoting in this framework. Yeah. And you've been very eloquent uh, about the uh, consolidation of wealth and uh, some of the challenges that that brings with it. I would also point out, uh, you know, Right now, with these all-time highs in the cryptocurrency space, we're only looking at a $640 billion market cap, to put that into context, about a third of uh, of Apple's market cap combined. Yeah, it's it's really quite small, almost exactly the same size as the subprime credit. In, oh, wait, that caused problems, didn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it's important to understand that Crypto is an incredibly interesting, and I've talked you know, openly about this. I think the idea of decentralized finance, I think the idea of moving to consensus-oriented systems, a more democratic principle um, within financial markets is going to be quite interesting. And I think it's going to play an important role because the flexibility that's created by the sophistication of things like smart contracts can extend our financial system quite meaningfully. I'm skeptical that you know, version 1.0 is going to be the winner.
Yeah, it's interesting because this is one of the, the few spaces where there's just such intensity, the Bitcoin maximalist trade uh, around people who believe uh, that it is, in fact, going to be the winner. They would argue uh, that this is something that's different than the metaphor between MySpace and Facebook. Uh, they would say that this is a this is a this is a, a store of value. It's money. Uh, it's not something that is uh, subject to innovation. In fact, in their view, innovation uh, is a negative. Uh, this is a technology that the core uh, functionality dates back to 2009. So it is really interesting to see how this unfolds. I, I agree with that. I would just caution people. I mean, I often hear the analogy, and I think you've certainly seen this in terms of the correlation and the dynamics of replacement, right? We've seen very clear indication that institutions are taking some of their allocation from gold and putting it in Bitcoin, for example, right? Um, I think there's a very deep misunderstanding about what gold is. You'll hear people often say, well, gold is money, right? Gold is not money. Gold was a technological innovation. It's an element on the periodic table that happened to fit the criteria for what was needed in a world in which physical coinage was the primary dynamic of global trade. And there's nothing magical about gold. It's not money, nor is Bitcoin. It is only a store of value to the extent other people place value upon it. And historically, in things like the gold standard, where it is proven to be a store of value, it has to be adopted by the sovereign. The right. reason gold plays a role in sovereign systems is because governments accept gold and give dollars in exchange or give euros in exchange. It's not a money asset unless that exists. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I make this argument all the time and it gets me yelled at in the crypto space. Uh, Bitcoin simply is not legal tender. Uh, you can't settle your taxes with it at the end of the day. Uh, and as a consequence, in my view, not money. Yeah, no, it, to, I, I actually, um, uh, I gave a presentation to a group uh, a couple of months ago. And my definition of money is very straightforward. Money is that which cancels debt. To the government, that's the form of taxes. On an individual or a private basis, that is debt. If you read a dollar bill, it says very clearly this is legal tender for the extinguishment of all debts, public or private. That's all money is. And Bitcoin does not function in that space yet. You can create Bitcoin contracts. You can create lending of Bitcoin. But ultimately, those contracts are unenforceable in terms of the requirement that you pay Bitcoin you can go to court and you can go through that whole process and you can have it settled in the legal system of your sovereign. You can't mandate that somebody pays you in Bitcoin. You can mandate that somebody pays you the dollar equivalent of that Bitcoin, but they can't physically be required to deliver you that Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, and to a certain extent, this is a semantic or a legal argument. I, I'm very bullish on the digital asset space as a whole, um, but this is it, it's almost taken on a religious dimension. Oh, it absolutely has. And that's one of the wonderful things about it, right? And when you talk about fear of missing out, nobody wants to miss out on the afterlife, right? I mean, that's that's nirvana, right? That, that we get to live uh, with, you know, permanent wealth a thousand years off into the future. And it's the same debate that I heard in 99, 2000 around new economy versus old economy, Yeah. right? Um, to me, it's very clearly a bubble, but, I, you know, my opinion is worth exactly what viewers have paid for it on this very specific instance, which is zero. <laughs> Except instead of wings, you get Lambos. Exactly. <laughs> Mike, it's always such a pleasure to have you on this show uh, and to have you on to talk about Newsflow uh, and things that are happening uh, the day of. Uh, any final thoughts about where we are right now? Um, look, I, I think that we are... Um, 
as, as I indicated with some of these charts, I think that we are in an interesting period where people have fully bought back in. We have effectively seen the negative uh, version or the inverse version of what we saw in the February, March time period where markets crashed as people tried to get out. Here we've seen markets melt up as people try to get in. It is debatable how much more money there is to come um, in terms of people reloading back into the system. But we are we're absolutely in a very different place. And I, you know, I, I mentioned this to you in the the lead into the show, right? I have had any number of people come to me and tell me this is the best environment for investing I've ever seen, right? That is empirically false. Right? Obviously, March 24th or 23rd was a better time period to be investing given what's occurred, you know, uh, over that time period. It's very easy to get excited with all the bad stuff behind us and all the presumably good stuff ahead of us. We would have felt the exact same way in January 2020. And just be thoughtful of where we are in this process. More people are back inside the boat and excitedly uh, moving forward than there were in, in February, March. I, I would suggest that that means a little bit more caution um, and would kind of flip my arguments from April uh, when I was much more bullish. Mike, very well said. The perfect summary. As always, a pleasure to have you join us. Ash, always a pleasure to join you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.